0: welcome to the antioch podcast we're a justice-minded christian church in beautiful bend oregon seeking and celebrating the reconciliation of all things may the word of christ dwell in you fully and give you peace the scripture reading today is from the book of john chapter 11 verses 18 to 28 And 32 to 45. Now, Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. who has come into the world. After she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. And Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of a blind man have kept this man from dying? Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad order, for he has been there four days. Then Jesus said, Did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did, Believed in him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Gary.
1: Morning, church. Good to see you all today. Hope you had a wonderful spring. And uh, my name is Pete, and I want to welcome you, especially if you are a guest with us or just visiting. We're really glad that you're here. Uh, Our scripture passage today is about Jesus' greatest miracle. And if you're familiar with the Gospel of John, then you might know that the author arranges his story of Jesus' ministry around seven miraculous signs. The first is in John 2, when Jesus changes water into wine, and the last one is here in John 11, when he brings this man back to life after he's been dead for four days. So this is the seventh and greatest sign in John's gospel. Um, We often refer to these kinds of things as miracles, but John actually never uses that term. He calls, when Jesus does these supernatural things, John calls it a sign. Meaning that when Jesus does something like this, he's not just putting on a magic show or showing off his God powers, He's doing something extraordinary for the purpose of pointing us to a greater reality, a sign. So uh, what we're gonna see this morning is that the purpose of this seventh sign is to point us to Jesus as the one who saves us from all that would destroy us, including our ultimate enemy, death itself. The story of Lazarus' death and resurrection takes up the entirety of John 11, but we're picking up in the middle of the story today. And it's a story that takes place at the home of some of Jesus' closest friends. We all know that Jesus had disciples that he spent lots of time with, but it's important to remember that Jesus also had friends that he enjoyed. And among his best friends uh, were this man named Lazarus and his two sisters, Mary and Martha. So we're gonna focus in today on the conversations that Jesus has with these two friends of his, Mary and Martha, as they process the death of their brother, Jesus' friend, Lazarus. Uh, in the beginning of the chapter, we're told that Lazarus is sick, and his sisters have sent word to Jesus and asked him to come and to be with them. But Jesus didn't come, and now Lazarus is dead. And I wonder if you've ever called out to God in a moment of pain or need, and asked him to show up, and he didn't. And if so, this story's for you. So Lazarus dies, they bury him, and then three days later, Jesus finally shows up. And when he does, Mary and Martha both have some words for him, which we heard in the scripture reading this morning. First thing I want us to notice is that Mary and Martha seem to have very different ways of dealing with the tragedy of death. Martha, we see, is much more cerebral and intellectual, and Mary is much more raw and emotional. Martha wants to talk about theology and the meaning of life and death, and Mary is on the floor sobbing. Like if they took the Myers-Briggs, Martha is a thinker, Mary is a feeler. And Jesus meets each of them where they are. doesn't say that one way of grieving is better than the other. And he comforts each of these sisters uniquely because they're grieving differently. So there are some differences, but there are also some similarities between these two sisters, starting with the fact that when each of them sees Jesus for the first time, they both say the same thing to him. In verses 21 and 32, Mary and Martha both say to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, My brother would not have died. So their accusation against Jesus is that if he would have been there, if he would have really cared, then things would have gone differently. Which again, is probably something that many of us in this room have struggled with in one way or another. Where is God when things go wrong in my life? Where is God when things go wrong in the world? God, if you are really there, God, if you really care, this wouldn't be happening. Our story takes place at a funeral. I want to tell you about the first funeral I ever did. I was 21, and it was for my friend Dan. He was 20 years old when he died by suicide. Dan was a student at Western Oregon University, majoring in political science and philosophy. Smart kid, ambitious, he'd been accepted into the ROTC officer training program, and his dream was to become a police officer. And uh, all throughout high school and college, Dan had battled depression and alcohol addiction. And we all knew that, but we all thought that he was doing better. Uh, Until one night, he relapsed and started drinking. And he ended up getting in his car and driving and got a DUI. And Dan knew that because of his arrest, he couldn't become a cop now. And so a few days later, his depression got so bad that he went into his room He laid his DUI citation out on his desk for his family to find. He put a gun to his head and pulled the trigger. Um, I spent the next week sitting with Dan's family. They were close family friends of ours. I was a youth pastor at the time and Dan's two younger brothers were part of our youth ministry. And the family asked me at the age of 21 to do the service. It was one of the hardest things I've ever done in my life. And again, one of the questions that people ask during a time like this is, where were you, God? Same question Mary and Martha have for Jesus. Where were you? And when Dan died, we were all asking that question. But one of the people asking that question was Dan's older sister, Esther. She was 25 at the time, and stationed in Kenya, where she was serving with the Peace Corps. And she got the phone call that her little brother had taken his own life. And Esther had had her own battles of addiction and depression, and she knew how badly Dan must have been hurting. And so that night, as she prepared to fly home the next morning, Esther cried herself to sleep pleading with God, where were you? If you had been there, my brother would not have died. And that night, in Africa, she had a dream. And in her dream, she saw her brother Dan in his room, laying his DUI citation on his desk, finishing off a beer, sitting down on his bed, loading his gun and raising it to his head. But Esther also saw in her dream that Dan wasn't alone that night. She saw Jesus there with him. And what was he doing? Jesus was sitting on the bed next to Dan with his arms wrapped around him and tears streaming down his face. Jesus didn't stop Dan from pulling the trigger. He just squeezed him tight and wept. And when Esther woke up the next morning, of course, she was still devastated and still crushed. But now she had an answer to her question of where was God the night that Dan died? God was there with him, holding him, weeping with him, closer than she ever could have imagined. Mary and Martha's question was Esther's question, and it's our question. And Jesus has something to say about it. Look what happens next. How does Jesus respond when Mary says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. In verse 33, when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and trouble. So any of Mary's fears that Jesus didn't care about Lazarus or about her, those fears begin to unravel because Jesus isn't stoic or distant or indifferent to her pain. He's deeply moved and troubled. In verse 34, where have you laid him? Jesus asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. So Jesus doesn't stand at a safe distance from their suffering. Rather, he comes closer. He moves towards them in their pain. And then they take Jesus to the gravesite where Lazarus is buried. And what does Jesus do? Verse 35. Jesus wept. He breaks down and he cries. He doesn't just tear up a bit. He doesn't swallow his emotions and stay strong for the people around him. Jesus weeps. You probably know this as the shortest verse in the Bible. It's just two words, but I think they might be two of the most important words in the entire Bible. One of the questions that readers of this story have been asking ever since it happened is why? Why does Jesus weep? And it's a good question. I mean, Jesus knows what's about to happen, right? Everyone else there is crying because they're never gonna see Lazarus again. Jesus knows that in 10 minutes, they're all gonna see Lazarus again and have a huge party. So why would Jesus cry if he's the one who knows how this story ends? It doesn't make sense. And not only does he know how the story ends, Jesus is the one there who actually has something, who has the power to do something about it. He doesn't just have to sit around and hope that things work out for the best. He just needs to say the words. So why doesn't Jesus just fix the problem instead of sitting there in pain? It seems to me that Jesus has both of the things we wish we had during tragedy. He has the answer to the question of why is this happening, and he has the ability to change things and make them right again. I would think that if I had those two things, there would be very few moments in my life where I would be broken down and crying. So why does Jesus weep? Well, one of the most common explanations that people give is that even though Jesus is fully God, he's also fully man. They say, yeah, Jesus is fully God, and he's about to raise Lazarus from the dead, so there's nothing he should be sad about. But he's also fully human, and the human side of him is grieving the death of his friend. And so often this story gets held up as a case study for the dual nature of Christ. That Jesus is fully God, fully human, one person, two natures. This is the Christian doctrine that theologians call the hypostatic union. Jesus is both perfectly divine and perfectly human at the same time. And so the theory is that that's what's happening here. We see Jesus' divinity in the fact that he raises Lazarus from the dead, but we see his humanity in the fact that he weeps at the grave of his friend. The divine part of him sheds death. The human part of him sheds tears, the theory goes. And it sounds like a pretty good answer for why Jesus wept. In fact, I'm sure I have probably taught that before. But after I've spent this week wrestling with this text, I actually don't think that's what's going on here at all. I think that the reason we like that explanation is because we're uncomfortable with the idea of an emotional God. I think to many of us, a God who has emotions sounds like a God I'm not sure I can trust. So if Jesus is God, and Jesus is weeping, then it must be the human part of him, not the God part of him, that's crying. Now, there are all sorts of problems with that theology. It's not how the hypostatic union works. Jesus has a dual nature, not a split nature. But here's my question. Where did we get the idea that God doesn't have emotions? That because he's all-powerful and all-knowing, God is unaffected by pain and suffering. Where did we get the idea that God is immune from feeling things like sadness? Where did we get that idea? Well, not by reading the Bible. Not by observing his creation. And definitely not by looking at Jesus. Jesus said that if we've seen him, we've seen the Father. Paul said that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. The author of Hebrews said that the Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. If we want to know who God is and what God is like, we find out by looking at Jesus. Jesus shows what God is like. As our friend Brian Zahn likes to say, Jesus is what God has to say. God couldn't tell us everything he wanted to about himself in the form of a book, and so he says it in the form of a person. When we look at Jesus, we are seeing God. God is like Christ. So if that's true then what do we see when we look at Jesus in this story and he's weeping? We see a God who cries, a God who suffers, a God who feels, a God who loves. Which is exactly what those around him said as Jesus wept in verse 36. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. Jesus weeps because God is love. And love refuses to be unaffected by pain and suffering. To love is to make yourself vulnerable to loss. And in his perfect love, Jesus opens himself up and makes himself susceptible to grief and to sadness. God's love never fails. He won't close his heart, not even for 10 minutes. So even though Jesus knows that Lazarus is about to come walking out of that tomb, and I'm assuming with the worst case of morning breath anyone's ever had, (laughs) Jesus in his perfect love breaks down and weeps. Not because he's human, because he's God. When we look at Jesus, we see a God who cries. If you don't believe me, C.S. Lewis said pretty much the same thing. In God in the Dock, he writes, We follow one who stood and wept at the grave of Lazarus, not because he was grieved that Mary and Martha wept, but because death is even more horrible in his eyes than in ours. So we can take comfort in knowing that just like Jesus wept when his friend Lazarus died, just like he wept when my friend Dan died, we have a God who is closer to us than we can imagine when we're hurting. And he's there hurting with us. Psalm 34 says, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted. So that we have a God who cries, comforts us, but it also confronts us. If Jesus wept, then that means there's something godly about grieving death. Ephesians 5.1 says, Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love just as Christ loved us. So if we want to love as God loves, then that means learning to grieve as God grieves. There's been an interesting shift in our culture over the last 50 years or so when it comes to how we do memorial services. If you've been around for a while, you may have noticed that people don't really have funerals anymore. Now we have celebration of life services. We still see funerals in the movies, right? Everyone's dressed in black. There's an open casket, a solemn, somber graveside service. We see that on TV but we don't see that in real life nearly as often as we used to in our culture. We've traded the funeral for a more personalized, less formal, less depressing celebration of life gathering. Instead of mourning the death of our loved ones, we celebrate their lives. In fact, a few years ago, the BBC reported that the most common song played at funerals in the UK, used to be Verdi's Requiem, the traditional Catholic funeral mass, but now it's always look on the bright side of life from Monty Python. (laughs) (laughs) Now, I'm not saying celebration of life services are bad and we shouldn't do them or anything like that, but I do think that as followers of Jesus, our response to death and tragedy needs to be shaped more by Christ than by culture. And when Jesus showed up for his friend's funeral, he's not there to celebrate Lazarus's life, he's there to mourn his death. So, what if the church became a place where people learned how to grieve well? The other day I was listening to an interview with Anderson Cooper, who's a TV journalist who over the last 30 years has covered some of the most war-torn and disaster-stricken events on earth. Um, Whenever there's an earthquake or a bombing or a famine or a genocide, Anderson Cooper gets on the plane and flies wherever in the world to cover it. And on the show I was listening to, the interviewer asked him how he got into that kind of journalism in the first place. What drew him to go to these uh, hurting and dark places and why he keeps doing it. And Anderson Cooper gave a really fascinating response. He said, the honest answer is that my dad died when I was a kid and my brother died by suicide when I was 21 and I wanted to go places where the language of loss was spoken." He said, when you're filled with grief and you don't know how to deal with it, you want to be around other people who are facing loss. You want to go somewhere where it's something people are talking about, and it's real. He says, people don't talk about that kind of stuff around here, and it makes it even worse when you're suffering. Anderson Cooper's not a believer as far as I know, but I think what he's saying here is so profound. When we're grieving, we need a place we can go where the language of loss is spoken. The language of loss, what a powerful phrase. And all of us need that, whether we realize it or not. And again, my question is, what if the church became that kind of place? A place where the language of loss is spoken. Lots of people think that church is supposed to be positive and encouraging, and that's great. But I think what people really need is a place where those who are grieving can go and not feel like outsiders. A place where it's okay to not be okay. When Jesus weeps, we learn that there's something godly about grieving. Grieving loss isn't a sign of immaturity or weakness or lack of faith. The most Christ-like people I know don't avoid pain or grief, but they move toward it and enter into it fully. So what does it look like then to grieve in a godly way? In 1 Thessalonians 4, the Apostle Paul is writing to an early community of Christians that are wrestling with this exact question. How does our faith in Jesus change the way we deal with death? Paul's addressing the question, how should followers of Jesus respond when someone we love dies? What do we do with our pain, with our sense of loss, with our broken hearts? What does it look like to grieve well? And it would be easy to misinterpret Paul's words here. Because back in verse 13, he says that Christians shouldn't grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. Now, it might sound like Paul's saying that because Christians do have hope in Christ, we shouldn't grieve. But that's not what he says. What he says is that Christians shouldn't grieve like those who have no hope. In other words, Christians grieve, but we grieve with hope. What does that mean? To grieve with hope, means that we weep, we cry, we get angry, we feel the things, say the things, pray the things that we shouldn't. We give ourselves to the pain and to the suffering, we move towards it and enter into it. To grieve with hope means we grieve and we do so knowing that because of Jesus, death doesn't get the last word. Mary and Martha knew this even before Jesus showed up. They didn't know he was gonna raise Lazarus from the dead, but they did know that God had promised his people about life and death and life after death. Back in verse 23 when Martha tells Jesus that he could have saved Lazarus if he had been there, Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he'll rise again in the resurrection at the last day. So notice Martha's biblical hope for the future is about a resurrection, not a rapture. Like all Jewish people in the first century, Martha didn't believe that death was the end of the story. She believed the prophets that said one day God the Messiah would come and the dead would be raised. This was the normative view of the, from the Hebrew scriptures. Not that one day God would rapture all his people away from earth and take them off to heaven, but rather that one day there would be a great resurrection and God would raise those who had died and they would live with him forever on earth as in heaven. So Martha tells Jesus that she knows Lazarus will be raised uh, from the dead on the last day, and Jesus says, that's true, but that's not what I'm talking about. In verse 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die, and whoever lives by believing me will never die do you believe this? So Jesus tells her that the resurrection God had promised to his people was way, way closer than she realized. In fact, she was talking to him. Jesus himself is the resurrection God has promised to his people. And this is where we start to understand that the story of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead wasn't just a miracle, it was a sign. See, even though the jews believed that the great resurrection believed in the great resurrection at the end of history no one was expecting that someone would rise from the dead in the middle of history which is why no one expected jesus resurrection at easter it was never supposed to be one person it was supposed to be all of god's people But what Jesus tells Martha he's going to do here is bigger and better than what he's going to do for Lazarus. Jesus says that anyone who believes in him will live even though they die. So what Jesus does in raising Lazarus from the dead is give us a sign. A sign that points to Easter and to Jesus' own resurrection but ultimately a sign that points to what's going to happen for all of creation that one day God will do for you and for me and for all those who are in Christ what he did for Lazarus. His story is our story. One of the people who believed this, this may be surprising, but was Vincent van Gogh, the famous Dutch post-impressionist painter of the 1800s. This is one of his self-portraits with his famous red beard. Looking super chill and easygoing. <laughs> Van Gogh was a master of using color as one of his tools for artistic expression. And one of the things Van Gogh's scholars have noted is that he often used shades of blue to express sadness, pain, and depression. And then he used shades of yellow to express joy and warmth and happiness and hope. So if we look at The Starry Night, one of Van Gogh's most famous paintings, We see it's predominantly blue, but with lots of yellow swirling around in the sun and the stars. And so he's celebrating the beauty that he sees in nature, even when the world looks pretty dark. One detail that most people don't pay much attention to is that there's a church down there in the town below, and it's the only building in the scene that has no yellow in it. All the houses around it have warm yellow light glowing through their windows, but the church's windows are dark and empty. Van Gogh painted the starry night while living in an insane asylum after the mental break that caused him to cut his ear off. Apparently, for him, the church wasn't a source of hope as he battled mental illness. It wasn't a place where the language of loss was spoken. But throughout Van Gogh's life, he started finding more and more hope in his troubled Christian faith. And you can see his paintings over time actually get less blue and more yellow. So we go from the blue starry night to one of the last paintings he did before he died, which is called The Raising of Lazarus. (laughs) And the entire picture is almost blinding with yellow. (laughs) You have the two sisters there each dealing with death in their own way. And then you have Lazarus waking from the dead on the left. Van Gogh may not have been a huge fan of the church, but there was something about the story of Lazarus dying and then being brought back to life that inspired hope for him. In fact, if you zoom in close on his face, he looks kind of familiar. with his empty eyes and his red beard. Van Gogh saw himself in this story, so much so that he put his own face on Lazarus. He understood that in some way the raising of Lazarus was a sign that there was hope for his life and hope for the world. We grieve, but we grieve with hope because Jesus is the resurrection and the life and whoever believes in him will live even though they die. I've, got long, I've gone long, but I have one more thing I want to tell you. I started by telling you about the first funeral I ever did. I want to close by telling you about the last one I did. The last funeral I did was three and a half years ago, and it was for my mother-in-law, Sharon Kirkbride. And she was one of the kindest, most joyful, most generous, most hospitable people I've ever known. And she wasn't only Jen's mom, she was also one of Jen's best friends. They talked every single day. Sharon was also an amazing Nana to her 10 grandkids, including our three kids. And we've thought about her a lot this week because Every spring break, Sharon used to fly us down to their place in Arizona, where we'd spend the week with her and have so much fun. She was the best. And then she was diagnosed with ovarian cancer at the age of 57. And she spent two years going through surgery, chemo, radiation, remission, recurrence. And she did it all over again, and some of you know exactly what that's like. If you were here at Antioch in 2018 and 19, you might remember that Sharon was regularly included in our prayers of the people. We prayed and prayed for her. I brought olive oil home, uh, olive oil from the Garden of Gethsemane, home from Israel. And we anointed her with it and asked God to heal her. But uh, cancer kept spreading and in November of 2019, treatment stopped and Sharon went into end-of-life care in Vancouver, BC. So Jen and her brother and her sister went up to Canada to be with Brad and Sharon during her final days. And I stayed home with the kids knowing that Jen would be calling at any time to let me know that her mom had died. And since I wasn't there in person, I decided to write Sharon a letter, both as her son-in-law, but also as her pastor. During the eight years they were part of our church in Corvallis. So I want to close by reading you just a bit of that letter. Dear Mom and Dad, though I'm not there in person, my heart could not be closer to you. Of all I want to express to you in this moment, I can't begin to tell you how thankful I am for both of you and the gift it has been to be part of your family these past 15 years. And Jen, you raised a strong, courageous, joyful woman whose love I could never deserve. And you're the best grandparents I could ever wish to Emma, Moses, and Mila. I've often told people that I don't get any of their in-law jokes. Mine are two of the most fun, kind, generous, wonderful people I've ever met. Your faith, life, marriage, and family will long serve as an example to be followed for me and countless others. In addition to being your son-in-law, I've also had the honor of being your pastor. What a gift. Mom, soon you will close your eyes and fall asleep. It will be the best sleep of your life deep, restorative, healing sleep. And then, in what will feel like no time at all, you'll wake up to the sunrise of a new world, a new heavens, and a new earth. You'll have a new body, free from all pain, sickness, and sadness. You will have never felt so alive. And everyone you love will be there. Generations before and beyond, your great-grandparents and your great-grandchildren all waking up to the warmth of the morning sun. And best of all, you're going to be with Jesus. He'll be so happy to see you. He'll wrap you up in his arms and welcome you home, and that's when your life will begin. You'll think back on your first 59 years, and while you'll laugh with joy at all the good memories, you'll realize that now it almost feels like it was a dream. Just a sneak peek of the real, eternal, abundant life in the new world. There, you will fully know, and you will be fully known. Everything sad will come untrue. Until that day, love your son Pete. So I sent that letter to her in an email on November eighteenth, two 2019. And Jen read it to her mom the next morning. And two hours later, she died. And she was 59. And the next weekend, I stood behind a pulpit at her memorial service. And I preached from John 11. The story of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. So three and a half years later, our family's still grieving Sharon's death. Of course we are. But we don't grieve as those who have no hope. We know that she is safe in the death of Christ. We know that even though she died, she now truly lives. And so, Annie, I want to close by asking you the same question Jesus asked Martha. Do you believe this? Are you trusting Jesus to be your resurrection and your life? And if not, I have to ask you, who are you going to believe over Jesus? Who are you going to trust more than him? What author or artist or scientist or politician are you going to place your faith in instead of Jesus? Can you really trust anyone that much? Who can you trust more than a God who cries. A God who has come to us, lived among us, suffered with us, died for us, and risen for us. A God who knows you and loves you more than you could ever imagine. Do you believe this? Will you believe this? If so, Jesus says, that's when life began."